Hey, Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for checking out our sermons online. I want to let you know whether this is your first time watching one of our sermons or you're just reviewing a sermon that you've heard here on the campus. I will welcome you, but I do want to let you know we have a core value at Coastal Community Church, and that core value is that you find a local church to be a part of. And so uh, if this, hopefully this sermon series or this sermon is supplementing your spiritual growth, but I want to encourage you to find a, a local church. If you live in the Yorktown, Virginia area, we would love for you to visit us. We have three services, uh, 8 o'clock, 9, 30, and 11, and we meet at 101 Village Avenue. Thank you so much for checking out this sermon online. I hope it encourages your walk and your journey with Jesus Christ. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 73. Uh, I want to keep with what Pastor David started last week. Uh, He took us through Psalm 90. I want to take us through Psalm 73. I want to keep this, this theme of perspective going um, this week that uh, we began to discuss last week. And, um, and I want to seek to have Scripture, as believers we should have Scripture, uh, inform our perspective and, and ultimately govern our lives. It's no surprise to anybody in this room that sin Uh, has infected this world. Sin's broken this world, right? The the, the whole world is devastated by sin. Racism, right? Sex trafficking, including pornography, child abuse, right? The destruction of, of a million children a year in the United States through abortion, wars and rumors of wars, cancer, Depression, the list can continue to go on and on. You could add plenty of things to that list. And with information so readily accessible to us, uh, to, to, to the culture that we live in today, we can hear and watch and read about these kinds of things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as a matter of fact, it's negative news that sells really well. Studies show that people, in, people, for whatever reason, consume or tune into negative news more than they do positive news. So there uh, becomes this strategy by mainstream media to produce uh, negative news. And because we're so inundated with, with this all the time, with this type of thing all the time, with this, the, the, these um, news stories and these sufferings and these persecutions and the sin that we always see all the time, we're prone to think that no other culture has experienced the turmoil our generation experiences. So that's, that's what we're prone to think. We're prone to think that, 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 that things are getting worse. And this morning, what I want to do is open God's Word, and I want to allow that to reshape our thinking on the matter. And I want us to see a, a firsthand account of someone who witnessed many of the things that we witness and struggle with. And hopefully, by looking at this, and particularly in Psalm 73, we can see how we can honor the Lord in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of sin, in the midst of tragedies and temptations and brokenness. And so I'm going to read Psalm 73 to you in its entirety, and then we're going to work through this text together. And I have six takeaways that I hope will begin to reshape our perspective as one local church among many, many local churches. And so, if you, like I said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 73. I'm going to start with verse 1 here. 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went in the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that it's living and active. And God, I pray that over the next few moments, God, I pray that you would um, help us to focus, help us to have a tent of minds, help us to have humble hearts. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and the ability to apply the things that we see here in Psalm 73. So God, may Coastal be a church that's shaped solely by your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a man by the name of uh, Asaph is believed to have penned this particular psalm. And he was a Levite and a, uh, um, a prophetic temple musician who declared God's word in melody form. And he served under King David's reign. And so most scholars believe that either Asaph himself wrote this psalm or this was something that was performed by a choir in the, in the spirit of Asaph. Um, later on. And, and, and here we have this psalm, Psalm 73, written by Asaph that's raw, right? It's, it's, it's honest. And maybe as I was reading through this psalm this morning, you, you kind of found a kindred spirit with Asaph, right? Maybe you've expressed and felt the desperation that, that Asaph felt and that Asaph expressed. 
And that's what I particularly love about the Psalms, right? They're, they're not neat and tidy, right? Life isn't neat and tidy. They're vulnerable. They're, they're um, emotive. And most importantly, they give us handles on how to honor God and His Word in all circumstances of life, right? How to honor God and His Word through our sufferings, how to honor the Lord as the, the Word renews our minds in the midst of our persecutions, how to honor the Lord through the renewing of our minds by His Word in our temptations, and as we repent, and as we more and more grow to see and savor who God is for us in Christ Jesus. And so let's, let's look at how, how Asaph kind of moves in that direction in Psalm 73 here. We're going to first and foremost look at these first two verses. It says, Truly God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph here, he begins with his conclusion. This is his, his concluding thought. God is good to those who are pure in heart. God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's his conclusion. And imagine if, if we uh, viewed all of our circumstances kind of through that, that presupposition here. And the word pure is not referring to people that are perfect, and we should know that as believers that are saved only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But pure here is referring to those who live in loyalty to God through their conduct and their speech. Their conduct and their speech is the evidence of pure motives, right? Pure is the evidence of the Christian life. It's not what produces a Christian life. It's the evidence of the Christian life that's already obtained through Christ Jesus alone. So we need to filter everything that we're going to hear this morning through um, that lens there. And it's important for us to understand before we really dive into Asaph's testimony that, that he didn't just arrive at this conclusion without any struggle whatsoever. Right? And we're going to examine his struggle in light of his conclusion. And if you're taking notes, it probably would even be helpful. I'm a visual person. If you write, uh, God is good to his church, kind of over the top of your notes, that's what's going to kind of um, encapsulate every other thing that we look at this morning. God is good to his church. And as you're looking down at your notes, you can jot this down. Asaph's testimony is our testimony. Asaph's testimony is our testimony. We, we, don't, we don't live in a unique time where we experience sufferings and tragedies and persecutions that weren't experienced by those that have gone before us, right? Your story and my story, prior to what we're prone to believe and what we're told at times, your story and my story aren't unique stories. They're not unique stories, and Asaph's testimony can demonstrate that for us can also demonstrate that, that, that if we as a church see God and his goodness from a biblical perspective and ourselves and our others and, and our circumstances from a biblical perspective, the Lord can certainly grant joy and peace and patience and the ability to persevere in the midst of whatever it is that we're observing or that we're going through. And because of that, we'll be able to see and savor Jesus, no matter our position in life. So Asaph's testimony is our testimony. Let's look at his actual testimony. This right here is his initial view 
Asaph's initial view of the wicked in verses 3 through 12. He says this. This is his initial observation about the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. A view of those in rebellion to God, divorced from Scripture, leads us into sin. A view of those in rebellion to God, divorced from Scripture, leads us into sin. We seem here to be getting Asaph's raw, initial, emotive perspective on the wicked. And he uh, he doesn't identify the, the, the wicked people here. And I think that that's helpful for us. That helps us to kind of contextualize it to our own um, culture today, right? But look at some of the language that he does use to describe the wicked. Arrogant, prideful, violent, scoffers, malicious. They threaten, they oppress, they're blasphemous. And this isn't, unique to Asaph, just as it's not unique to us, right? We can attach this description to those who are in rebellion to God today and all throughout history. Like I said earlier, you don't, you don't have to watch the news for long or, or be out in public or be on social media before you engage with people who match this description. And I thought it would be helpful for us to get extremely relevant to today But if you get on the news or on social media, if you're out in the culture, maybe you're talking with some friends over coffee, something that's a concern of our culture today are social justice issues, right? We hear about that a lot. There's probably certain movements that you think of the moment that I say social justice issues, right? And two two large ones that are in our culture, these aren't the only ones, nor are they the only large ones, but these are two biggies, right, is issue of racism and abortion, right? We hear, we hear that conversation a lot. Just this weekend, uh, it, we, uh, the March for Life happened, right, up in D.C. and, and other places, uh, to be sure. But the racist and the abortionist is arrogant and violent. They're scoffers. They're malicious. They threaten. They oppress, and they are blasphemous, The abortionist is blasphemous when he slaughters a preborn child who's created in the image of God in the womb. The racist is blasphemous when he uses violent language and violent words towards someone created in the image of God. Our sins are blasphemous in nature. And maybe I drop the label of abortionist and racist for a moment Maybe this describes somebody in your family, right? Some of us had some really awkward dinners over the holidays, didn't we? We had Thanksgiving, we had Christmas, we had New Year's. We were uh, stuck in uh, uh, a big old pile of four-inch snow for a little while. (laughs) With people maybe we didn't want to be cooped up with. 
Right? But maybe this describes somebody in your family. Maybe this describes a friend, right? And if we as Christians, if we fail to process our experiences with these types of people, or if we evaluate uh, or evaluate ourselves in a lot of God's word, we're, if we fail to do those things, we're going to come to faulty conclusions as Asaph did initially regarding the wicked, right? His conclusion about them, and this is important for us, this was Asaph's initial conclusion about the wicked. It was that they prosper and essentially, and we're going to discuss this more in a moment, it's that they prosper and essentially they win. Essentially, they win. Think about that for a moment as a believer, right? Is Christians engaging with our culture on how to process the evil that we're seeing on the news and social media or the evil that we experience and for some of us, the evil that we commit, right? If we have this faulty perspective, if Christians have this faulty perspective, what hope can we offer? What hope can we offer? How can we engage in the conversation any different than anybody else is engaging in the conversation, Because of Asaph's faulty conclusions about the outcome of such a lifestyle, in verse 3, get this, it says that he becomes envious. He becomes envious of the wicked. Because envious of the wicked because of their apparent prosperity. From his perspective, their apparent prosperity. And this is where I have an issue with how many Christians engage with social justice issues, right? We engage them with an improper perspective. We engage them in a way that's influenced more by the broader culture than by the word of God. And engaging in a social justice issue, and I'm picking on that because this is kind of what I think is, is more relevant to us this morning, but engaging in a social justice issue with an improper perspective, a worldly perspective, will lead us to a crisis of faith. It will lead us to a crisis of faith, we'll begin to think, if the wicked seems to prosper, then maybe I should question the goodness and the justice of God. And then it can produce in us pride and arrogance and certainly false conclusions about the, the, the God that we serve. And it, if we have false conclusions about the God we serve, then we're following the Israelites Right, who worshiped the golden calf, right? They, they created a false and powerless God in their own image. They fashioned a God in their own image and they began to resent him for it. And not only do we begin to resent God, but we begin to do whatever. When we, when we don't have this scripture-informed perspective, what happens is that we begin to do whatever we have to do to advance the social justice issue that we're passionate about. Right, we, 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 we fight racism not with seeing the racist as created in the image of God who needs to be converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the racist as an opponent to be demeaned and shouted down and maybe even attacked. And then racism and our quest to end racism, which is a good, godly thing to pursue, but our quest to end it becomes the highest goal. And when it becomes the highest goal, the, the number one goal, it just becomes an idol. It just becomes an idol. It becomes our golden calf. It's what dominates our discussion. It's what dominates our thought process. The same with the abortionists, right? As believers, 
if our number one goal is to end abortion, and I pray that both racism and abortion are ended, but if that becomes our number one all-encompassing goal, and we see that that the way that we're going to end abortion is through shouting down opponents and through legislation, we diminish God's calling on us to herald the gospel and allow the gospel to conquer the hearts of both the racist and the abortionists. Now here, here's the, the big issue for the church. I fear the church doesn't see Jesus Christ as sufficient. Do we see Jesus Christ as sufficient? Or are we busy taking these other routes? Are we busy being uh, influenced by the way the culture engages on issues that should be engaged with? Do we model the way that they engage it? Or are we leading the discussion? Because I don't think we're leading the discussion. Do we see Jesus Christ as sufficient? Right, The church has to have a proper perspective on wickedness. Otherwise, our desire to conquer wickedness cast a shadow over the one who conquered wickedness, which is Jesus. Now, we can't allow good desires to, to, to see oppression and violence ended to become the, 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 the first place desires in our lives, right? The first place desire in the Christian's life is reserved for, for Jesus Christ alone and everything else has to be an extension of that. Everything else has to be an extension of that. So, so how do we know if we're evaluating it and we find that maybe our perspective on wickedness mirrors the perspective that Asaph had on the wickedness that he observed in his own culture, how do we know, what are some good questions that we can ask ourselves to kind of check our, our hearts, to check our motives, to check and evaluate uh, what it is, who it is that we're worshiping? And so these are just a few questions. You can jot down the ones that you think are relevant to you, but what dominates your thought life? What dominates your thought life, right? What are your views of those who are sinning? What are your views of those who are sinning? Are there subtle feelings of hatred that seem to be growing in your inner person, even if you're not necessarily vocalizing it quite yet? Do you find yourself to be a bitter person, an angry person, a defensive person? Do you find yourself to coming across as self-righteous? Are you stressed constantly? Are you lo- are, very practical? Are you losing sleep in regards to your perspective on wickedness and those who commit wicked acts? And again, we can extend this beyond even social justice issues, right? You have your own experiences with people that maybe are sinning against you, and certainly we'll get to our own sins against people in a moment. But the, the big question to, to ask ourselves is, what is our heart posture toward wickedness and wicked people? What's our heart posture, at least toward the people committing acts of, of, of wickedness? Continue to read along with me. This is uh, Asaph's initial view of himself here, verses 13 through 15. It says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I, I'll speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. A view of self 
divorced from Scripture leads us into sin. A view of self divorced from Scripture leads us into sin. This passage reveals something that we've all done in some shape, form, or fashion, which is we compare ourselves to other people. Right? We compare ourselves to, to other people. Asaph's view of the prosperity of the wicked seems him to, even furthermore to, to entertain the thoughts of why bother? Why bother? Do you, do you feel like that this morning? Right? Do you feel like that when you watch the news? Do you feel like that when you're on social media? Do you feel like that when you're engaging in your friend circle? Do you feel like that when you're in classes in college? Why bother? And then what, we, what shifts, what, what we begin to kind of gravitate toward at least is, is when we begin, we begin to think that the issue is primarily with, with those out there with the people out there, right? And, and we even begin, when we begin to compare ourselves with other people and we see from our perceived perspective, perspective that the uh, wicked prosper, we, we begin to, to um, uh, fail to see ourselves as the chief of sinners, right? The Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and I believe he did that at the height of his spiritual maturity, right? As we grow in our sanctification, there's two things that should happen. Our perspective of God's holiness should increase. That doesn't mean God's holiness increases. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's as holy as he was. He's always been holy, and his holy never increases or diminishes, but our perspective on it increases, and then our perspective on our own sinfulness as well should, should grow too. So is, is our perspective growing? Do we see ourselves as the chief of sinners? And thankfully, According to verse 15, Asaph didn't express all of this out loud to his church, but this was an internal wrestle in his mind, even as a church leader, right? He was a, he was a church musician. And that's, we see two errors here in his thinking, and, and, and it's easy to default to these two errors when we, we uh, divorce our thinking from the Word of God. Error one is we begin to think that we're on the losing team. Right, that's the all in vain, he says, have I kept my heart clean. Right, he, Asaph thinks he's on the losing team. He sees those that are wicked prospering. And then secondly, we begin to think more highly of ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people. Right, that's the lack of considering that we're the chief of sinners, right? Man, I'm not as bad as, as so-and-so, Right? According to whose standard? Like what, what? On what basis do we make the claim that I'm not, I'm not as bad as this other person that, that I see doing these certain things in our culture? You know, let's spend time talking about both of those, both being on the losing team and, and having a faulty perspective on ourselves. First and foremost, we're not on the losing team. We're not on the losing team. Right, hear me on this coastal because I tire of God's local church. We may, not, we may not acknowledge this verbally, but we often live our life as if we're on the losing team. Right, we're not on the losing team, no matter the political or the cultural climate of the day. Christ is victorious. Right, we're not waiting on Christ to be victorious. Christ is is victorious. The cultural and political climate of the day isn't the thermometer by which we measure the success of God's kingdom. It's not the thermometer by which we measure the success of God's kingdom. We just finished a sermon series last year 
last fall called the Lord's Prayer, right? Matthew chapter six, and, and Jesus instructs his disciples and consequently us to pray and be in this posture of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What in the world? Now, would Jesus instruct us to pray this if it wasn't his will for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then before Jesus commissions the, uh, the, uh, the disciples, before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father and he's seated, he commissions them in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18, he says, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has authority. We're not waiting on him to have authority. He has authority. His authority's never been taken away from him, and his authority's never gonna be taken away from him. Therefore, we can take comfort and be courageous in light of the authority of Jesus Christ, and that certainly should change the way we engage with our culture. Psalm 110.1 says that, that Christ, essentially, when we read it through the lens of the New Testament, Christ is seated into all his enemies are made his footstool. And how are God's enemies, those who are wicked and those who commit wicked acts, how are God's enemies made his footstool? His enemies are made his footstool through the proclamation of the gospel as the gospel goes forth and conquers hearts and changes culture. That's how we engage with the world around us. We don't have some wimpy message that we're called to timidly share. We're called... To, to, to go forth and to proclaim the good news of the gospel and call people to forsake their wicked ways and submit to the lordship of our ruling and reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that we're on the winning team. Second, we have to remember that we were once enemies of God. We were once enemies of God. Right, that's humbling to think about that. Right? I'm gonna talk about this more in just a minute, but we have to see ourselves biblically. We're sons and daughters of the Most High King only because it was God's gift to us, not because of anything that we did or we were smart enough to, to trust Jesus. It was a complete gift from God made possible through the personal work of Jesus Christ and applied to us by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, right? When, when we begin to, to not see ourselves biblically, and, and a good way to do that is when you begin to compare yourself to other people and you think, man, I'm not, I'm not as bad off as, as this person. That, that's when our perspective's already shifty there, when, when we fail to see that we were enemies of God and we were gifted salvation. Nothing in our own doing. It wasn't because we were more righteous than the next person, solely because of a gift from God. We can't look at the... And that, and, and because salvation is a gift from God, we can't look at those who are in rebellion against God as opponents to be destroyed through screaming and shouting. We can't look at them as, as, as people that we can debate with to show them how consistent our worldview is. We are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, calling men and women to forsake wickedness and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Fourth, we gain an eternal perspective on our lives, circumstances, and others only when we enter the sanctuary of God. 
Only when we enter the sanctuary of God. Verses 16 through 20. But, and you you see that conjunction there. Anytime you see a conjunction, you should know there's going to be a shift in the conversation, right? Um, It's a Georgian teaching you uh, grammar rules. Uh, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. A couple of things that are are worth noting here for us. Asaph tries to understand, right? We've already kind of, we've witnessed as we've walked through this psalm together, we see his struggle and we see how he's seeking to understand what in the world is going on with with the wicked here. Uh, And he says that it was a burden until he went in to the sanctuary of God. And and the result, according to the scriptures, say that Asaph discerned their end. He discerned their end. Uh, John Calvin thought that entering the sanctuary meant uh, entering into the Bible's doctrines. Entering into the Bible's doctrines. Another teacher suggested that Asaph, he saw the fire that was on the altar that was constantly burning there where uh, animal sacrifices were burnt, um, and, and he was reminded that sin and, and, uh, and wickedness was ultimately consumed. It was this vivid reminder for him. And another pastor believed that in, in the sanctuary, Asaph uh, began to see everything from God's perspective about his, his uh, circumstances. So initially, we get, we get Asaph's perspective on, on the culture that he's living in and on his own circumstances, and now we begin to see the shift where Asaph is beginning to see God's perspective on the culture and God's perspective on Asaph's uh, circumstances, and, and what a gift that is. And we have to do the same. We have to enter the sanctuary of God. And we, as believers now, something that Asaph didn't have is we have the ability to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, right? And when we do this, we see that all Scripture from beginning to end is pointing us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? The Bible's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's what all of Scripture is about. All arrows, all signs, all of prophecy find fulfillment in Jesus So when we read that Asaph was burdened, we see that he was burdened here. And uh, he was burdened trying to understand. We can flip over to the New Testament. And we go to Matthew chapter 11. And we see how Jesus deals with burdened people, don't we? I love this passage. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden or burdened, some of your translations say, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so Asaph, who according to Psalm 73 felt stricken and rebuked and wearisome prior to entering the sanctuary of God, and many of you can identify with those emotions, right? He enters the sanctuary of God and he finds rest. And certainly we know that we can only find rest in Christ Jesus And for many of you in this room, that's nothing new for you to hear. But man, practically, you go to find rest in every other place other than Christ Jesus. So what are 
what are some implications that we can pull from Asaph entering the sanctuary of God? How can we as believers today enter the sanctuary of God? And I just have a few for you that you can, you can jot down if you'd like, but uh, first and foremost is the Lord's Day. Right? We meet here every Sunday, except when it snows. We meet here on Sundays to sing the word of God, to pray the word of God, to preach the word of God, and the Lord established that rhythm for us. We work six days a week, and then one day a week is reserved for worship. He established that so that we can glorify him and so we can be built up as God's church in Christ. Bible intake. Are you, are you daily feasting on the word of God? It's a good indicator on whether or not you believe that Christ is sufficient. Prayer. Do you have a disciplined, focused time of prayer? And certainly the discipline of repentance, right? Repentance isn't just something that happens at conversion, but believers should be continually repenting and, and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so is your, mark, is your life marked by uh, a God-centered repentance, right? These are all means that the Lord uses to shape our perspective and to conform us more into the image of his son. So we enter the sanctuary as Asaph did, and we know it's made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the second thing worth noting from this passage is we gain a proper perspective on God's enemies. We gain a proper perspective on God's enemies, Again, those who regularly commit acts of wickedness here. Asaph discerned their terrible and wicked end, right? He says they're in slippery places. They fall to ruin. They're destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors. You despise them as phantoms, right? This is the future. And hear me, Clay, this is the future of all those not found in Christ. This is the future of all those not found in Christ. And certainly as believers, that should motivate us even more so, it should build in us this compassion when we discern the end of the wickedness and we know we have the good news of the gospel that the Lord has entrusted us to guard and to herald until he returns. Certainly knowing the destination of the wicked should produce in us a desire even more so to herald the good news of the gospel, to show to a lost and dying culture They're settling for cheap, fleeting junk. There's one pastor that I enjoy hearing hearing him preach, but he says when, as believers, when we call a man or a woman to repent, we're calling them to their joy. Do we think about calling people to repent in that way? Fifth, entering the sanctuary of God leads us to label our sin appropriately. And so Asaph here, he talks about his soul being embittered. He talks about being pricked in heart, right? And, and being pricked in heart is, is a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That's not something that we conjure up or on our own, but it's the Holy Spirit that takes, that takes our stony hearts and, and makes them hearts of flesh. And then it leads him, once the Holy Spirit convicted him, of his sin and of his transgressions and of his faulty perspective on his culture and on his circumstances, it led him to, to, to confess sin. He confesses that he was brutish. He confesses that he was ignorant. He confesses that he was a beast toward God. What a gift it is to be able to come 
to that right conclusion. And then finally, our confidence in God's goodness increases when, he, when we recount his faithfulness in our lives. So look at, listen here to, to Asaph recounting God's faithfulness. He says, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Asaph, he was drifting in his thinking. He was becoming hard-hearted, yet the Lord never let go of his right hand. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I think of the Apostle Peter's confession to Jesus, right? Where else are we going to go, Lord? Where else are we going to go? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you make that confession this morning along with Asaph? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. He's not too much. He's not too little. He's exactly what's needed forever. Christ is sufficient. Charles Wesley on his deathbed in 1788, he read this part of the psalm and he dictated this hymn to his wife. And some of you may be familiar with it, but this is one of the, uh, the verses to it. It says, In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. And certainly when we find ourselves doubting the goodness and the faithfulness of God, we don't need to look any further than, than Romans chapter five, do we? It says, for while we were still weak, speaking about us, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you use the gospel to conquer the hearts of your enemies. And so, Lord, as, as your church, we confess to you that we were once enemies. And, God, we were made allies only because of the person and work of Jesus. And that was a gift from you applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, help us to look at those who are in rebellion to you as people whose hearts need to be conquered with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So give us love and compassion and patience as we engage with the broader culture, as we seek to faithfully herald the truthfulness that Christ came to save sinners. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.